and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. This is our confession. Brothers and sisters, how do you feel about researching? Once me and a few of my friends, uh, we were having a big debate. Uh, the four of us had gotten together, and for some reason, uh, me and one other friend were talking about how whenever we were making uh, even a moderately large purchase, we like to do our research. And I looked it up, and we're not alone. Uh, apparently in 2006, the majority of young shoppers spent on average one to two hours researching before making any large purchases. And just four years later, in 2010, the average was up to three hours. And by 2014, the average had risen to nearly six hours of research online before large purchases. Our two other friends, though, they thought we were absolutely crazy. They weren't worried about finding, like, the absolute best product at the best price. They just wanted a good product at a, a good price, and they thought their time was way too valuable to spend six hours online before a big purchase, just to maybe get a marginally better deal. And maybe they were right. But I hope you can agree that certainly some things in life are worth putting careful thought and consideration and work into. Carefully thinking, okay, where am I at? Uh, what exactly do I need? And what exactly is available? What is the best fit? And this can be especially true, I think, when you're thinking not just of products that you buy, but rather when you're thinking of people. For example, if you're looking into a business partner or looking into an employee, then it's worth it to, to stay back, to take a minute and think. Think about where am I at, what do we need, and what does this person bring to the table? What do they offer? And the catechism actually has been doing sort of the same thing in the first a few Lord's Days. From Lord's Days 2 to 4, the catechism has been assessing our situation, who we are, who you are, and who I am, and where we're at telling us what, or rather, who we need. And then finally, in Lord's Days 5 and 6, we turn over and we start being introduced to who can fit the bill, who can give us what we need. Finally, we're introduced to the perfect man for the job, our mediator. And we'll explore this topic in two parts. First, we'll see who we need, and secondly, we'll see where he's found. But first of all, who we need, and we'll spend most of our time on this uh, this afternoon. Who we need. And as mentioned, this is exactly what the Heidelberg Catechism is doing. Talking about who, what exactly we need. And last week, if you were here in our second service, you heard about the very good news that we have a God who is committed to justice. A God of justice who cares far more about injustice and holiness and sin uh, than we do. The one who's more angry with sin than we are. And yet we also heard the bad news that evil isn't just a problem out there with others. But evil is a problem inside of us, in our hearts. And so the question is, how can fallen, sinful people like us be brought back to this God of justice, to live with him as we were created to do? And I actually love how the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, what we just read together. After explaining the Bible's teaching that sin that we commit each day, sin committed in the presence and against the Most High Majesty of God, that it must be punished with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Lord's Day 5 then proceeds by asking this question. How can we escape this punishment and be brought back into God's favor? 
Joel Beakey, maybe you've heard of him, he's a well-known preacher and author, he says that this question is the simplest and surest mark of grace and the desire of a true child of God. In other words, Joel Beakey is saying that when we ask this question, it's the easiest and the most reliable sign that God is truly working in our hearts. You can think of it this way for a minute. A number of years ago, back in Ontario, a teenage boy took his parents' car without permission. And while he was out, he crashed their brand new Dodge Challenger. He crashed their Dodge Challenger right into one of his neighbor's living rooms. Thankfully, everyone was fine, but the Dodge Challenger and the living room were absolutely not fine. Now imagine for a second being that boy. You just messed up big time. Imagine that boy having to face his parents. And first of all, imagine how you might act and what you might say if what you most desperately wanted as you faced your parents was to avoid punishment. As much as possible, what you wanted to do was avoid the consequences of your actions. Now imagine, on the other hand, if that wasn't your priority. Imagine if what you most desperately wanted was to make everything right with your parents. You wanted to heal your relationship as quickly as possible, restore their trust, get back into their favor. That is what Joel Beakey is talking about. He's saying that's the surest mark of God working in our hearts. When we hear about our sins and what they deserve, that they deserve an eternity away from our God and Creator, we don't just ask, how can we get out of it? How can we avoid the punishment and consequences of our actions? Instead, we also ask, how can we make it right? How can we restore our relationship with our Creator God? How can we live with Him again? How can we be welcomed back into His presence? And the Catechism tells us, our God is perfectly just, and so full payment must be made for our sins. But, it says the message of the Bible, that payment must be made either by ourselves or through another. And that's the hope of the Bible from the beginning to the very end. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot satisfy the punishment. We can't restore the relationship and get back into God's favor on our own. But God assures us, right after the fall of the sin, he goes to Adam and Eve, he covers them with new clothes, and he tells them, another is coming. Another will come. Immediately after the fall into sin, God promises the seed of the woman someone who will be able to step in to mediate between us and God and restore us to favor. And he will be able to do this on your behalf and mine because, in a sense, he will be just like you and me, the seed of the woman. Just as Adam and Eve were regular people, and we're regular people, a Savior would come, and he would, in a sense, be a regular person, or as our catechism calls it, a true man. And that's highlighted really beautifully in our text from the Gospel of John. We read in John that Jesus had just begun his ministry and a number of people had met with him and they were, they were drawn to him. They were compelled by him. They wanted to follow him. And in our text, a man named Philip goes out and finds someone else, a man named Nathaniel that he must have known. And he urges him, you come meet Jesus too. And he says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, we found the Messiah, the mediator, the seed of the woman, 
the one who can make me and you right with God. And Nathaniel, what does he do? He scoffs. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Kevin DeYoung, a well-known preacher, he explains this beautifully. He says that we need to contextualize this and understand why he's scoffing, because this is fascinating. Philip had just run into Jesus and then ran over to a friend or relative, and he said, we found the Messiah, the mediator promised from the beginning. His name is Jesus, he's the son of Joseph, and he's from Nazareth. We need to realize this is extremely, in a sense, anticlimactic. This is the one that all of human history has been waiting for. And Jesus, Jesus back then was a very ordinary name. There were Jesuses everywhere. Joseph, too. The name and the person of Joseph, they weren't anything special. And finally, Nazareth. Nazareth was small. It was a, a hick town. It was like the arrival of Bethsaida where they were uh, in uh, this meeting. It was completely unimpressive. The punchline of jokes. And so Kevin DeYoung suggests that we contextualize it. So in Chilliwack, British Columbia, we can maybe think of it this way. It's like someone runs up to you on an ordinary Tuesday, and they say, we have found the savior of the world, the hero, the one who can crush the devil and restore us from our sins and bring us back into God's favor. His name is John, the son of Steve, from Hope. In a sense, this is very, it's eclectic. It's very strange. It sounds like this is a regular guy. In a sense, that's exactly what Jesus was. But what's shocking, almost tragic, of Nathaniel scoffing and saying, from Nazareth? Seriously, this guy? Is that we actually have the backstory. If you look before our text to the earlier, chapter, the earlier part of John chapter 1, there you get a very famous passage we get a little bit of the backstory of this Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And what we read there is that he was there in the beginning. He was there in the beginning of the world. In fact, before the foundation of the world. He was there and he was the word. And we read this one. He was with God. And we read this one. He was God. John tells us all things were made through him and without him not anything that was made was made. We read that in him was life and the life was the light of men and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the mediator, a true and an ordinary man. At the same time, truly and spectacularly, he's God. It's important for us to reflect on Christ's humanity. It's easy for Jesus to seem so great and powerful and so elevated that he seems completely unapproachable. And the truth is, Jesus is absolutely great and powerful and elevated. But he's also absolutely approachable. Jesus Christ was and is a true man sent to save ordinary men and women like you and me. God, the second person of the Trinity, great in splendor, came down in the flesh. He was like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. He was willing to associate 
with sinners like us, though. And he was able to sympathize with us. The second person of the Trinity came down, like you and me. He started off as a bunch of cells, a fetus. Nine months later, God in the flesh was a newborn baby, rocked asleep in his mother's arms. His parents held him. They, they taught him to walk and to talk. He grew up in a poor family in a small, nobody town, seemingly a perfectly ordinary guy. And so, perfectly ordinary people like us, in our sins and weaknesses, we can go to this Jesus. He is our mediator. He is our savior. As Dane Ortland says, he is the most understanding and the most approachable person in the universe. We see this approachability in our text as well, in John chapter 1. Jesus is remarkably patient and kind. Nathaniel doubts Jesus and scoffs at him already. And yet I love what Philip says. He says, you don't believe me? Well, come and see. Come and meet him. Then you'll believe. John Calvin notes uh, that Philip doesn't know much about Christ yet. Uh, he calls Joseph his father. He'll learn a little bit more about Jesus' fatherhood later, won't he? He says that Jesus is from Nazareth. Well, you'll find more about where Jesus was actually born later. He doesn't know much. But what he knows, he shares. He needs to go and tell someone. He tells Nathaniel, come, come and meet him, and you'll see. And before Nathaniel even gets to Jesus, Jesus calls out, he speaks to him, and he says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel, as we read, he responds, how do you know me? And Jesus answers, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, what in the world? This is a question that everyone asks. What in the world was doing, Philip doing under the fig tree? We have no idea. I can't tell you. But we know whatever it was, it was completely private. It was something Nathaniel knew that only God could know. Again, we have no idea what Nathaniel was doing. But I always think back to what I once heard in a sermon. One preacher suggested that perhaps Nathaniel had been deep, deep in prayer. Perhaps he was pouring out his heart before God in a way he never would before another man. Maybe he was praying about the sin and deception deep in his heart, praying for forgiveness and transformation. And then, by God's grace, Philip comes and says, Come meet this Jesus. And Christ sees him and says to him immediately, A true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He says, I saw you, I heard you, before you knew me, I knew you. Before you were searching for me, I was already searching for you. And when Jesus says he saw the whole thing, Nathaniel says immediately, you're a regular man, but you're not just a regular man. Hear the wonder in Nathaniel's words. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Here we see the savior who we need. He's God in the flesh. He was and is willing to draw near and associate with sinners. And as we'll see, he's willing to pay the price to mediate and bring us back to God. Our Savior, as we read in the Catechism, he needed to be a true man. He needed to be like us. And he is. And yet, he needs to be far more than you and far more than me because we're helpless on our own. And Jesus Christ is. He needs to be righteous so he can pay for others. No sinner could help others escape punishment, not even themselves, much less return us to God's favor. 
He needs to be a good man, willing to associate with sinners, draw them in, and even lay down his life as a ransom for them. And yet he also needs to be true God. So as we read, he can bear in his human nature God's wrath against sin and pay and wipe out our debt once and for all. Think for a moment about the size of your debt before God, the price Christ paid for you and for me on the cross. We heard a few weeks ago in the parable of the ungrateful servant that it was compared in the NIV translation to 10,000 bags of gold. Well, think of your great debt before God, which the Catechism says is increasing every day. Now think of this room. Think of the stack of all of our sins, all of our debts before God. Now think of all the Christians gathered around the world today. All the Christians from Christ's time till now, all believers from the beginning of the world till now. Think of that debt stacked up. Jesus Christ is the mediator we need. He's the one like us, in a sense, who can pay for us. He's the one who's also God, who can pay it all. Can wipe down that unthinkable debt by bearing the eternal punishment of body and soul that each and every one of us deserve, while living a perfect life to bring us back into God's favor. That's the mediator who we need. That brings us to our second and our final, and don't worry, our much shorter point. Uh, Nathaniel comes to Jesus, and he finds that Jesus knows him, uh, just as he knows us and believes in him. And finally, Jesus' response is spectacular. He commends Nathaniel for his faith, and he says to him, in a sense, Jesus says, you haven't seen anything yet. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, Jesus asks? Well, you will see greater things than these. And then he points him and us to the Old Testament. This is where we can find Jesus. Jesus says to us, Truly, truly, I say to you. And these yous here in this uh, section of the text, they all switch to the plural in the Greek. It seems Jesus isn't just talking to Nathaniel anymore, but he's talking to all those around. He's talking to you and to me as well. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you. You will see greater things than this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And here we see Christ is the mediator we need. Here he says, I am the one you have been waiting for. I am the one who Philip has just said the whole testament was about. Even the passage we read earlier in Genesis 28. I'm the one Jacob foresaw. I am the one who, he says, came to open heaven. And again, the Greek, that's a perfect tense. When Jesus says he came to open heaven, he means he came to open it once and for all. It's opened and it's staying opened. Jesus says, if you look at me and my life and my person and my work, if you keep on watching, you will see the gap between heaven and earth bridged once and for all. He says, you'll see the angels up in heaven, of course. God's messengers going down and going back up. The uh, intercourse, the, the exchange, the, the entryway between God and man opened up once again. And notice what he says. He doesn't just say, you'll see this opened up because of the Son of Man. What does he say in our text? He says, you'll see angels going up and down on the Son of Man. 
Jesus says he came not just to make a bridge, but as true man and true and eternal God, he is the bridge. He is the reuniting of God and man, of heaven and earth. And we can see this throughout Christ's life and work, but especially at the end. As Christ was held down, as he was nailed to a piece of wood, and the cross was raised up once and for all in his body, Jesus Christ bridged the gap to reunite us and God, heaven and earth, once and for all. He's the one who's able to satisfy God's heavy wrath. He's the one who's willing. He's the one who knows us and our debt and came to identify with us, to save us from punishment and bring us back to God. And that's what the whole Bible is about. As Lord's Day 6 says, from where do you know all this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. All the imperfect Old Testament mediators were just shadows pointing ahead to the true mediator, our mediator, Jesus Christ. This question and answer of Lord's Day 6, it always reminds me of a story from the Bible. It always reminds me of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Perhaps you're familiar with that story. Jesus, right after his resurrection, he runs into a couple of disciples, and they don't recognize him. And these disciples, they're very distraught. Jesus, their good friend, their teacher, he's recently died. And so you can imagine how they are after the death of a friend. But more than that, they say that they're not just upset uh, because of the death of a friend, but they actually tell Jesus that their hope is dead. They really believe finally the mediator had come. Finally, there was a way back to heaven, but he had been killed. He was supposed to redeem them, to bring them back to God. So what does Jesus do with these disciples? Does he just say, guys, it's me? No, if you remember the story, he actually does something completely different. He takes them back to the scriptures, to the Old Testament, to the scriptures they had likely known for their whole lives. And he showed them, we read in Luke, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And as they came to realize that the scriptures were all about who they needed, and so they were all about Jesus Christ, what did they say? They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Brothers and sisters, the scriptures reveal our amazing need and our amazing mediator, the one who's exactly who we've been longing for and everything that we need, the one who has opened heaven, the one who is the way back to God, and God reveals him to us in the scriptures. And so we should realize that when we come to church or when we go to God in family worship or personal worship or Bible studies, we can learn a whole lot, a whole lot of facts. But the question is, is this what we're doing? Are we searching the scriptures on our own with our family and church? Are we searching them for what they're all about? The mediator, Jesus Christ. Are we seeing how we don't understand any of the scriptures until we realize it's all about him? I, I was speaking to some of you recently, and you told me the great joy that you had because you had read a Bible story that you knew since you were a little kid. You've always known it. You've heard the same story over and over again. But recently, you heard a sermon. And that sermon changed everything. Because finally, you got it. Finally, it clicked. That story you knew since you were a kid. 
It was all about Jesus Christ. It was all about our mediator, our savior, the one who already now has brought us back into God's favor so we can live our whole life in his presence starting now. And you didn't say it in these words, but I imagine it was true. Your heart was burning within you. That's what it was all about this whole time. Brothers and sisters, as we go to the word and as we go to worship, let's ask and plead with God that we might see Jesus Christ the mediator. And let's beg for opportunities to tell our children, our family, our friends, and everyone who doesn't know him. Come, come and see, not the word, not just the word by itself. Come and see Jesus. Exactly what Philip said to Nathaniel. Just come and find out. Bring your questions and concerns, your problems to him. And now, brothers and sisters, as we go to the Lord's table, let's ask the Lord that our hearts might burn within us as we taste and see not just bread, not just wine, as we taste and see Jesus Christ, the mediator, the one who cleared our whole debt by his death on the cross, who poured out his blood that we might be washed clean so we can be returned already now back to God's favor. Let's go as imperfect, repentant people, not frightened to come to this awesome mediator because we know that he came down to us first and he came down to us even as an ordinary man, a true man, a righteous man. Let's go to him in scripture and in prayer and word and in sacrament. And as we do our research, we'll find out that he's everything that we need. I'd just like to end with a quote from one of our other confessions, the, the Belgic Confession, Article 26, which is all about Jesus Christ's work as our mediator. We read there, we confess there, rather. We believe that we have no access to God except through the only mediator and advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. For this purpose, he became man, uniting together the divine and human nature that we might not be barred from, but have access to the divine majesty. This mediator, whoever, however, whom the Father has ordained between himself and us, should not frighten us by his greatness, so that we look for another according to our fancy. There is no creature in heaven or on earth who loves us more than Jesus Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking the form of man and a servant for us, and was made like his brothers in every respect. If, therefore, we had to look for another intercessor, could we find one who loves us more than he who laid down his life for us, even while we were his enemies. If we had to look for one who has authority and power, who has more than he who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who has all authority in heaven and on earth? Moreover, who will be heard more readily than God's own well-beloved Son? What more is needed? Christ himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why should we look for another advocate? It has pleased God to give us his Son as our advocate. Let us not then leave him for another, or even look for another without ever finding one. For when God gave him to us, he knew very well that we were sinners. Amen. Let's sing together in response.